As I've grown older, I have had more and more conversations with fellow first-generation Asian Americans who grew up in the 80s and 90s and, like me, spent their lives assimilating. While I can't speak for all of us, I can say that for me, assimilating and forfeiting cultural differences felt like the only way to make it in America. Welcome to Pod Defiance, where we don't lecture, but we do educate. I'm Eric Wilson-Edge. Today on the pod, Associate Teaching Professor Annie Nugent reads from her essay on celebrating the Lunar New Year. Nugent's parents fled Vietnam in 1975 and eventually settled in Alabama. Growing up, Nugent tried to suppress her Asian heritage. The family experienced racism, which included violence directed at the family's dog. In this essay, Nugent talks about her long journey toward embracing her cultural background, including learning how to celebrate the Lunar New Year with some help from friends and Google. It's the Lunar New Year, which means that for the next two weeks, Asians around the world will be ringing in all things good and lucky with food, fireworks, and time with family and friends. The Lunar, also called Chinese, New Year is arguably the most important holiday for those who celebrate, and for weeks I've been busy planning out ways my children can celebrate with line dances and cultural fests and dinners with friends. Admittedly, I may be going overboard. Having grown up in the South around very few Asians, I wasn't exposed to Asian traditions and my parents did not teach me or celebrate many Vietnamese holidays. I had to Google most of the traditions I now use to celebrate the Lunar New Year with my kids. This meant going onto Pinterest to see pictures of floral altars that were supposed to usher in good luck, and then buying flowers and candles to replicate something like a centerpiece in our foyer. After double-checking all the lists of superstitions and taboos, I made sure we cleaned the house on the eve of the New Year, then stashed my broom so we didn't accidentally sweep away any good luck the first day of the New Year. I planned out elaborate festive menus and invited my Chinese, Taiwanese, Vietnamese, and American friends over to celebrate, then ordered custom cat-shaped cookies decorated with the word that and gold for my son and daughter to pass out at school. I wanted them to have the chance to tell their classmates that while most Asians are heralding in the year of the rabbit, we Vietnamese are celebrating the cat, and that is the Vietnamese word for New Year. Despite these efforts, I messed up a few things. I made chow ga for breakfast New Year's morning with our Chinese friends. They saw me add rice to a boiling pot of homemade chicken stock and then swiftly warned me that eating rice porridge on New Year's Day would curse us with scarcity the rest of the year. Rice porridge is considered a simple common meal and not elaborate enough for a feast or celebration, Google told us. We had to pivot and make noodles, a safe dish that portends longevity to serve for brunch instead, and I ended up ladling enough porridge for two families into Tupperware. When I ran out of room in the fridge, I had to sneak a bowl of porridge to our dog. He's fat enough that a little scarcity might do him good. A Vietnamese friend delivered some treats and a sign with a Chinese character that I guess means prosperity or luck. And while I knew enough that it belonged on our door, I had to text her to ask which edge went up. I think the lotus flower should be on the bottom, she told me, and the sign is supposed to hang like a diamond, not a square. 
She then said that her research showed the sign could be hung in any direction. Though it sounds to me like a way to ensure some well-meaning Asian American didn't curse their house by hanging the sign in the wrong direction. Then, I didn't have time to run to the bank for the $2 and $20 bills to fill the leasey envelopes. My husband and I hardly ever carry cash, post-pandemic especially, and I had already made the mistake of filling the red envelopes with desserts last year. Red envelopes are cash or gift card only, so no passing out leasey to our kids' friends when they arrived, which was disappointing since what else do kids look forward to but gifts on holidays? The envelopes sat sad and unfulfilled around our perfect red and yellow floral centerpiece, all of dinner. These missteps might have ruined celebrations in a more traditional and superstitious Asian family, but my Asian heritage raised American friends laughed and commiserated with me. We mused over why some of these superstitions existed and wondered why we didn't get Lisi or Hongbao as kids ourselves. We were happy, even thrilled, to just be together and share Asian culture with our kids in ways that made them proud and included. It wasn't always this way, and likely still isn't in many places in America. As I've grown older, I have had more and more conversations with fellow first-generation Asian Americans who grew up in the 80s and 90s and, like me, spent their lives assimilating. While I can't speak for all of us, I can say that for me, assimilating and forfeiting cultural differences felt like the only way to make it in America. To be clear, I don't fault my parents. I know they did what they thought they needed to do for our family to survive. As refugees from a war no one likes to discuss, their lack of celebrating that was probably part of their attempts to save me from a life of struggling to be understood or of one holding on to a past that we could not safely return to. I was given an American name and lost most of my native ability to speak Vietnamese before I even started elementary school. Despite my parents' best efforts, my main objective in school was not grades or learning. It was fitting in. I was teased for the way my eyes were shaped, the way people assumed I talked, and once a kid younger than me told me that the round chicken pox scar between my eyes would turn red when I grew up. She was referencing an Indian bindi, but was so sure my scar was a bindi that I was just left speechless and embarrassed. Another time, a boy in middle school thought it was funny to pass me a note asking if I ate napalm. I didn't know what napalm was then, but even so I knew I was being attacked. And when I later understood what napalm was and its history in Vietnam, I was too old to track this boy down and punch him. Then I was witness to the many slights I saw committed against my parents. Salesmen clapping my mom on the shoulder while giving her a terrible deal on repairs or furniture. Doctors screaming at my dad instead of enunciating more because they thought that that would somehow make him understand them better. Even otherwise friendly neighbors making offensive comments about what we ate that they tried to pass off as mere observations. I was too young and too fragile to speak up, and instead these slights caused me to embrace my Americanism even more. I taught myself to make roast turkey and all the trimmings for Thanksgiving learned to play soccer and ran cross country, got elected to student council and even dabbled in theater growing up. All things Americans celebrate in well-rounded kids. I prided myself on the fact that whenever I took on a role or competed in a sport, there was often some murmur of being the first Asian to do this or that in our school or community, and I proved I belonged in that role by shirking all of what made me Vietnamese. Instead of celebrating my Asian heritage, I learned to subdue it. I quickly learned 
to hide all that made me different. I'm no longer a child clamoring for acceptance or unable to see the nuance and privilege of having a different cultural upbringing. It took me years to undo the damage of what I term survival assimilation, and then some years of overcoming the shame of subduing my heritage to start to learn it better. And with two children now, I am navigating how to have them not just accept who they are, but to be proud of it. Thankfully, I don't do this work alone. My kids are in schools that talk about the true origin of Thanksgiving, discuss Hanukkah and dreidels in December, and celebrate Black History Month. Together, we've read children's books tackling hefty topics like the Japanese internment and civil rights heroes like Maya Angelou. We visited the Wing Luke Asian American Museum, Daybrook Indian Cultural Center, and Northwest African American Museum. We live in a city with strong Asian roots and are regularly able to grocery shop and cook at home or eat out for the comfort foods I grew up with. Everywhere I look, being Asian is getting cooler and connecting to one's ethnic background or finding truth in some foreign culture seems like the subplot of dozens of movies and books. Our food is now chic and our medical practices mainstream. Asian Americans are finally being represented in music and pop culture as not just model minority smart, but also athletic, funny, and dare I say it, even fashionable and sexy. That we can be three-dimensional personalities shouldn't be such an accomplishment. But even with all this progress, when an Asian American today wins, say a gold medal or an Oscar, we still laud the uniqueness of it, the stereotype shrugging, shattered glass ceiling bits of it. It's quite a different world than where and when I was growing up in Alabama. I think back on the fact that the only time I ever wore an alyai growing up was during a history presentation I did in Vietnam. I ended up wearing one of the three my mother had been able to salvage during my family's escape from Saigon in 1975. And I remember my teacher looking at me and saying, you look so lovely in that. Your mother must be proud. Maybe she was. But well-meaning as the comment was, it made me feel like my cultural heritage was a thing to study, and me wearing that dress, somehow an aberrance, a novelty. I am thankful that my children are now surrounded in communities where their differences are not ridiculed or studied, but accepted as a part of who they are. I am heartened to see others who aren't Asian celebrating the New Year with us, and appreciated when my non-Asian friends googled and shared in the taboos and traditions too. I'm certainly not trying to dismiss the backlash that Asians have received since the pandemic and do not mean to imply that the work for a more inclusive community is done. However, the new year is meant to be a time of new beginnings, a time to let go of grievances past, and particularly the water rabbit, or cat, this year is supposed to signal a year of peace and patience. Considering this, I hope we can continue to work towards harmony and do the sometimes slow and painful, but hopefully also lasting, steps needed for systemic change. My children today can embrace their whole selves after so many years of Asian Americans asking for more representation, so many years that allies have shown how multiple identities can be embraced, and so many years of inclusive actions taken by teachers and organizers in classrooms and communities nationwide every day. Today, my daughter asked if she could wear an aoyai to school while, pack, while I packed up her cat-shaped vet cookies for her classmates. 
The Vietnamese traditional dress is not just a relic or some badge of her heritage, but rather something she wanted to wear to celebrate our holiday. I told her she couldn't wear the red one she wore yesterday and instead to wear the purple one. She's a proud second generation. Turns out she has three alliyes of her own. The music you're hearing is by UW Tacoma Associate Teaching Professor Nicole Blair. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. You will find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Pocket Cast.